Praise be to God. I would like to share with you a message this afternoon. If you would simply open up your heart today. I would like to read out of the book of John, the gospel according to John chapter 6. And if you have your Bible, you can join there with me now or you can follow along on the screen. But we're just so grateful for all that God is doing in our midst. And amen. God, God is moving again. God has something in store for each and every one of you today. And we look forward to getting to know you and to fellowshipping with you. And we just know that God has something in store. Somebody say amen today. What awesome worship. Amen. What tremendous music. Praise be to God. How many of you appreciate our musicians, our praise team, our worship leader? Amen. God bless them. Tremendous. Whew. Praise God. We are just, every Sunday we are treated, and, and I know it's not for us, but, but it, we certainly benefit from, from all the preparation and, and the anointing and the gifts that are offered unto God. Amen. John chapter 20, verse number 6, it says, Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen clothes lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded together in a place by itself. The other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Would you pray with me today? Let's just ask God to speak to us today. Amen. I invite you to pray with me this afternoon. Father, we thank you for your presence that we feel in this place this afternoon, God. For surely the presence of the Lord is in this place, Lord, and we recognize you, King of kings, Lord of lords. Father, we thank you for all that you have already done for us, Lord, and every day that we live is a gift from God. Being able to come into this house today is a gift from God, and we thank you today. And we ask, God, that right now as we enter into your word, Lord, that you would speak to us. God, that you would challenge us, that you would convict our hearts, transform our lives, Lord, that your name would be glorified in this place, God. Salvation is here, God. Revival is here. We declare it in Jesus' name. Someone say amen. You may be seated in the presence of of God. I'm going to speak for a few uh, moments today. See for yourself. Someone say, see for yourself. John ran uh, to the empty tomb hoping to see the evidence for himself. And because of that, he believed in something far greater than his own comprehension. He had to go and see for himself. In psychology, there is something known as confirmation bias, which refers to the tendency that people have to seek out information that confirms their pre-existing beliefs while often ignoring information that contradicts them. They call it confirmation bias. And uh, of course, this can limit someone's ability to see things objectively uh, or change their mind even when presented with evidence to the contrary. Some have argued that when John went to the tomb, that he may have been uh, 
a part of confirmation bias that he already had in his mind preconceived ideas or beliefs, but that is simply not, not the case here, simply not what happened. He didn't go expecting to see something, go uh, knowing what he would see. In fact, he had no idea what was in store for him. You see, 2,000 years later, it's easy for us to, ex to assume what the disciples knew uh, about Jesus' resurrection. It's easy for us to assume that they were all waiting with anticipation of what was going to happen, that they were all kind of sitting around waiting for the welcome home party to begin. But the Gospels tell a different story. The disciples were not all sitting around like some of us do uh, for a surprise birthday party when someone's about to come home and everyone is excited and you can feel the energy in the air. That's not the mood of the disciples in the days and the moments following Jesus' uh, crucifixion. It was the exact opposite. They didn't know what was going on. They didn't, had no idea uh, what was taking place, um, and they were very much uh, disoriented and discouraged. The finality of Christ's death and burial left the disciples in a state of shock and fear and grief. They were troubled, and uh, they were mystified because of all of, even with all of Jesus' predictions about his own death and burial uh, and resurrection, they still did not have an intellectual grasp. They still did not have a theological framework to understand what was going to happen. Again, thousands of years later, we have the benefit of time and space and, and the whole uh, canon of Scripture to be able to see the events as they took place. But the disciples were living through it in real time. And they didn't have the benefit of hindsight. They were going through it in that very moment. And they did not have a complete picture or understanding of all of the events that were taking place. And so they were very much discouraged. It seemed like all hope was lost. It seemed like it, it, was, it was all over for them. And this is why in verse 19 it says that they still did not understand. I think it's very important for us to understand this today that... The disciples were processing this in real time. And they did not have a biblical, theological, or even a spiritual understanding of what was going on. Their whole world had just been flipped upside down. Everything they thought they knew, everything they had heard and experienced for three and a half years, uh, following Jesus and learning after him, they still did not comprehend this event of the death and the resurrection of Christ. And so when Christ died, the disciples were processing it. They were mourning and grieving. They were distraught and despondent as if though they had just said goodbye forever to their master. And I think that we need to pause today and consider that. We need to pause to consider the pain that they were experiencing because uh, let me say that there are times even in our own lives where the, the ways and the plans of God don't make sense to us. There are times where we may find ourselves just like the disciples there in the moments after the death of Christ where things feel like they are final. Where the trouble that we are going through and the heartache that we are experiencing and the pain that is unexplained in our bodies, in our lives, in our homes may have a sense of finality to them. Where it feels like all hope is lost and it feels like 
like there is no tomorrow and it feels like uh, we are just kind of going through the motions and as hard as we try to wrap our minds around the affairs of our life, uh, as hard as we try to comprehend and to grasp and, and to put a bow or a period at the end of things so that we have some peace, as hard as it is to try to, to grasp the weightier things of life, we often find ourselves just like the disciples, like they were huddled in those rooms and huddled in their homes, scratching their heads, trying to figure out what in the world is going on. I don't know if there's somebody here today that has ever felt like that, where you've just wondered what in the world is going on. I didn't, I didn't say that you stopped believing in God. I didn't say that you just gave up on your faith. But every once in a while, if we're honest, uh, we just kind of look up at the sky and we say, God, where are you when I need you the most? And we, we start to wonder, what, what, what was the purpose of all of this? Why did I go through this? Uh, why did I believe? Why did I place my hope and my trust uh, just so that I can be in this position? And that's where the disciples felt. Uh, they were experiencing a pain. But this is what I've come to understand about pain and how God uses it is that pain can be a gift. Pain can be a gift when it opens up your eyes to a resurrected Christ. Pain can be a gift when it opens up your eyes to resurrected hope and resurrected life. John was mourning for three days. He was mourning, but he was about to witness with his very own eyes something that would change his life forever. But it's that period of mourning. It's that period of mystifying questions. It's that period of uncertainty. It's that period of hopelessness. It's that period of darkness between Friday and Sunday where we wonder, if it's ever going to get better, is my family ever going to get better? Is my life ever going to get better? Is my heart ever going to, am I ever going to love again? Am I ever going to hope again? Am I ever going to dream again? Am I ever going to live again? But God sent me here today to infuse hope into someone's life and tell you that because he lives, oh, because he lives, I can face tomorrow because he lives, all oh, Fear is gone. Why don't you clap your hands and give God some praise today? You see, tears may blur your physical vision, but they often clarify your spiritual vision. And John, with red and swollen eyes, saw things that would change his life and will change ours. And I want to talk to you today just for a few moments about what John saw when he ran to the tomb on that day, what he experienced and what he witnessed in his life that forever changed the direction of his life. The first thing that John saw and the first thing that we must see today is an empty tomb. An empty tomb, someone say amen. amen. The Bible says in verse 4 that John outran Peter and he came to the tomb first. I think it's interesting that John would include that note in his writing, in his account of what took place in those moments. I don't think this was a foot race. I don't think that John was trying to beat uh, Peter just to say, hey, I beat you there. I don't even think it was a race against time. Because if the body of Jesus was already gone, then one would have to ask, why was this man running so hard? Why did he sprint to an empty space? 
John wasn't expecting, we got to remember, John wasn't expecting Jesus to rise. So what in his running was he hoping to find? What, John, what was he hoping to see in his running? The Bible says he ran. He ran. He hightailed it. He hightailed, I mean, he ran. He dashed over there. And he was huffing and puffing, and, and I'm sure that he was sweating by the time that he got there through those windy little streets uh, throughout Jerusalem so that he could get there. I mean, he put all of that effort and all of that, that energy uh, exuded. He, he put it all into running to get there and to get to the tomb, and he doesn't even believe or know that Jesus is going to rise. So why was he running in the first place? I believe that it was more than just curiosity or concern that powered John's legs to the tomb. I believe that John ran to the tomb because he himself, he ran to an empty tomb because John himself was running on empty. He was desperate. He was desperate. He was desperate for, 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 for answers. He was desperate for love. He was desperate for life. And you know what I've come to realize? That when you're desperate and, and, and when you're desperate in your life, uh, even if it's got the hint, even if, it, even if it has the appearance of hope, even if you don't even, you're not quite sure if it's all going to work out, even if, you're, even if not all your questions have been answered, if it just has any semblance of hope, uh, if it just, it, as long as it's just different than where you are. Sometimes you find yourself running. Sometimes you find yourself desperate and running. And this is what John is doing. He doesn't even know what he's going to find when he gets there. All he knows is that whatever is there is different from where he is. And he's desperate for it. So he starts to run. And he starts to run. And he said, I've got to get there. I've got to get to this tomb. I've got to see for myself. And he's desperate. He's desperate. And what I've come to realize is that desperation is often the key to seeing the greatness of God. Desperation is the distance between an empty life and an empty tomb. That's it. John didn't know any more than what we know today. John didn't know any more than what we have today. In fact, John was living and operating with less revelation than what we have today, and yet he ran. Because God is not going to test your knowledge. God is not going to test how much you know, how many verses you can quote how much theological understanding that you have God's not going to test what side of the tracks that you grew up on and who you know and who you're related to and what church you went to as a child God's not going to test all of that the main difference between those that experience resurrection life and those that don't are those that are desperate for something that is greater than themselves those that can believe God enough that they're willing to run where everybody else is comfortable with it. Is there somebody here today that says if I got to run, I'm going to run. I'm going to run until I see what God is wanting to do. Would you clap your hands and give God some praise today? Come on, how many of you are thankful? Uh, I remember that song. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. I was glad when they said, we used to sing, I came running when they said, let us go. Why are you running brother I don't know but today might be the day that God blesses me today might be the day I get my miracle today might be the day that I see my son my daughter be filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost I want
wonder if there's somebody here today that's got some desperation in your heart that says, I'm willing to run. I'm willing to run. Oh, my God. You know the problem today is nobody wants to run anymore. Yeah, we want God to be our DoorDash and run to us. We want Uber Eats, Holy Ghost. No, my friend, you're going to have to get out, of your, get out of your house. You're going to have to put on your nice clothes. You're going to have to get in your car, fill it up, charge it up. You're going to have to get yourself to the house of God and come on running and saying, this might be the day of my salvation. Amen. I think we've made it too convenient for people nowadays. And I'm not against the live stream. God bless you. <laughs> I'm not against that. Uh, we hope to reach you. But you know what I tell the live stream folks? Uh, don't stay home. You got to run here. You got to run. I came running when they said, yeah. is there anybody here that said, I'm going to run? I, oh, my God. I want to run like you read. Oh, hallelujah. We run to the places that offer us hope. We run to the places that, where we sense that there's something for us. Uh, just like some of you, when they hear that there's a sale, whoo, you run. Ooh, hallelujah. Uh, Doorbusters. Uh, I got to get in. I got to get mine. Hallelujah. Oh, yeah. And I'm not, it's not just the sisters. It's the brothers, too. Huh? I got to get those Jordans. I got to be the first one. Uh, yeah, but how often are we running to the things of God? Are we running like John ran? I got to get to the empty tomb. I don't even know what's there for me yet. I may not get anything. I don't know, but, but every once in a while, you got to take a chance. Every once in a while, you got, because here's what I've understood. I've realized that an empty tomb leads to a full life. If you can, my God, an empty tomb leads to a full life. If you can just run to the empty tomb of Jesus. And no, you don't have to hunt. You don't have to buy a ticket to the Holy Land. And you don't have to fly all the way to Jerusalem. And you don't have to go all the way there to see the empty tomb. If you came right here to 1425 Springer Road at City Light Church, my friend, you have come to an empty tomb. But this empty tomb will promise you a full life, full of power, full of joy, full. Oh, my God. And the world does the opposite. It's full, but it gives you nothing but emptiness. But when you run to an empty tomb, it promises joy unspeakable and full of glory. Oh, my Lord. Hallelujah, Jesus. The second thing we've got to see is the burial clothes. The burial clothes. So John runs and he, he comes to the, to the empty tomb and, and he sees the empty tomb. And then he stops there and he looks. The Bible says in verse, in verse 5, he stooping down. Ooh, there's a whole message right there. Because you don't just run. you got to stoop. Oh, my God. you got to fall. you got to lower yourself. You've got to, you, you've, you, you got to humble yourself. He stooped down and he looked in and saw the linen cloths lying there. Now to appreciate this scene, let me take you back to the Old Testament because that's the only way we're going to appreciate what John saw. Jewish burial clothes were made of linen, a sacred fabric that was also used once a year before entering uh, on the Day of Atonement where, uh, where the high priest would dress. He would dress in linen garments 
And he would enter the holies of holies on the day of atonement, which, which would cover uh, the sins of Israel. And, and he would enter with these linen garments. And therefore, linen, linen is a fabric that is synonymous with the covering of sin. It is a synonymous with, with atonement. Because these linen garments were reserved for the priests that would go on behalf of Israel and atone for their sins by sprinkling the blood of an animal sacrifice uh, in, in the presence of God. The presence of the linen there in the tomb, watch this, it correlates powerfully with the mission of Jesus Christ who came to redeem us from sin by the shedding of his own blood. We were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, Paul teaches, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And so even in the tomb, my God, I want to preach today. Even in the tomb, we see a picture of the high priest, knowing not that we've got a high priest named Jesus, who became our mediator between God and man, and he died on a cross. How many of you today are thankful for the cross where Jesus died? He shed his blood. He shed his blood. Yes, he did. But let's go deeper into this Old Testament analogy because the correlation deepened when we consider how the high priest would sprinkle the animal's blood on the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Let me show you a picture of what the Ark of the Covenant looks like. Hallelujah. This is the Ark of the Covenant. This is the, 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 the sacred box that Old Testament saints used uh, and symbolizing the presence and the glory of God. It was housed in the temple of God. And this sacred box existed there only for the high priest to go and minister before this box. Uh, and this box contained special artifacts uh, uh, that, were, that, were, that were precious uh, to God's people. Amen. But what I want to point out about this special box and all of its intricate designs uh, is that when the priest would go and when he would approach this box on the day of atonement uh, he would take the animal's blood and he would sprinkle it right there on what is called the mercy seat now you're saying I don't see a seat there well the mercy seat is right between those two cherubim those angelic like uh, creatures that are facing each other that space right in between is the mercy seat and they would sprinkle the blood of the animal sacrifice on that mercy seat and that was the atoning work uh, covering the sins of Israel. Now, when you look at this picture of those two, how many of you see those two angelic beings right there sitting on the mercy seat? Well, when we look at what Mary saw, when Mary walked into the tomb, Mary Magdalene, there was a space there. And the Bible says that she saw two angels sitting in white, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. When Mary went into the empty tomb, she saw a New Testament mercy seat. She, my God, are you with me today? She saw two angels, one standing and sitting at the head and another at the feet. Oh, my God. And in the middle, she saw the linen cloth. And I see a picture today that what we have in Jesus is greater than the Old Testament sacrifice. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of all forgiveness and all sacrifice and all bloodshed. He is our salvation. He is. How many of you are thankful for a merciful God? God has been merciful. And if you cannot preach
gracious like I want to. If you need mercy, you're in the right place. If you need forgiveness, you're in the right place. If you need salvation, you're in the right place because the mercy seat is here. If you'll step into the tomb, you'll see the mercy of God. Come on and clap your hands and give the Lord some praise today. His mercies are new every morning. His mercies are everlasting, aren't they not? Somebody say amen. Oh, I'm thankful for the mercy of God today. I'm thankful that when they walked into the tomb, they saw the burial clothes on a mercy seat. They saw what Jesus had done for them. Oh, but thanks God for his mercy today. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your mercy. We cry out for mercy. And not only does he give us mercy, he gives us grace. I said he gives us grace. Mercy is you not getting what you deserve. Grace is giving you what you don't deserve. Oh, my God. I said mercy is God not giving us what we deserve. What is hell and damnation and condemnation and separation from him. Thank God for his mercy. But grace, whoo, my Lord, is giving us what we don't deserve. All the benefits of heaven. Every spiritual blessing from God is ours. But inquiring minds may wonder why the linen cloths were there. Why didn't Jesus walk out with his linen cloths? Why didn't he continue to wear the linen that was on him? Once again, the Old Testament, the Old Testament, we've got to look at it because there it will show us another picture that Jesus exemplifies here. The Old Testament shows us that, that once the high priests were done, after they were finished with the atoning uh, uh, sacraments and, and they were finished, Scripture says as they were required to remove the garments they, would rem they wouldn't just walk around uh, throughout the city or the temple doing other things. Those, those garments were consecrated just for the work of atonement. And when the high priest was done, they would remove those garments and then they would leave them there. As if to say, my work here is done. My work here is complete. And so the reason why I believe Jesus left those garments there and did pack them up because he was sending a message to everybody here today and to the whole world that when I did it, I did it and I completed it and my work is done. This is why Jesus, when he was on the cross breathing his last breath, he said, it is finished. You don't got to look for another savior. You don't got to add Jesus to something else. No, it's Jesus and Jesus alone because in him is all of salvation. In him is all of it. He did it all. He paid it all. Somebody say amen today. It's all in Jesus. He finished the job. He went all the way and he left the garments there as if to say my job here is done. He overcame hell, death, and the grave. And what John saw, the linens that were there when he saw that they were on the, on the, on the place where he laid, it must have registered in his mind. Maybe he saw that Old Testament picture in his mind. Oh, the work is done because the Bible said he saw and believed. So you got to ask, what did he see? 
What did John see? Because all I would have saw him is just an empty tomb. But John saw the symbolism. John saw what was left over there, and he believed. But there was one more piece of evidence. I'll be just a few more moments today. But there was one more piece of evidence that John saw that we must see today. Is that when John stooped down and he entered the tomb, when he stooped down and he entered the tomb, he saw a folded face cloth. He saw a folded face cloth. He saw a handkerchief there that had been neatly wrapped and folded. And there was something different about this item compared to the strips of linen. In verse 7, it says... The handkerchief that had been around his head, not lined with the linen clothes, but folded together in a place all by itself. You see, John wanted us to see that there was something different about this handkerchief. There was something different about this folded face cloth. He wants us to, he describes it separately from the other linen cloths because he's pointing out something to us in our attention. And the detail of this is important. The detail is important because... Once again, the assumption up to this point was that the body of Jesus had been taken, that his body, that the tomb had been raided, and that the body of Jesus had been stolen. Mary Magdalene, when she ran to the disciples to tell them of the tomb of Christ, remember she said in verse 2, she said, they have taken away the Lord out of his tomb. And And I don't know where they have laid him. You've got to understand that they all thought that the tomb of Jesus had been raided. They all thought that the tomb of Jesus had been robbed, that somebody broke in there and they took and they stole his body. So this was the the, the most prevailing uh, thought in their mind as they're running and as they're entering tomb. Now, I don't know if anybody here has ever experienced a burglary. I don't know if your home or your car has ever been burglarized. Does that not make you upset? Huh? Amen, somebody. Can I get an amen, huh? That that makes me upset. Mine has, and I'm going to tell you something, it's very unnerving. Very unnerving. When someone burglarizes your house and takes one of your belongings, huh? But one thing's for sure. My house, my car, things have been burglarized a number of times. I don't know. Maybe I have a target on my back or something. It's a pick on me. I don't know what it is, you know? But the one thing I've noticed about every thief, every burglar, about when they go and they break in, they always leave a mess. Not once has someone ever broken into my house, and after they took what they wanted, they made my bed and washed my dishes. That would be the least that they can do, right? (laughs) Not once when they break into your car do they bring a shop vac and clean up all the glass that they broke. (laughs) This happened to me just recently, so I'm pretty upset about that, huh? Not once did they clean up after the mess. They don't, burglars don't clean up the mess that they leave behind. So when John ran into that tomb, he was probably expecting to find a messy crime scene. In his mind, he thought that he was going to see things thrown all over the place. Like the way that, because when a robber goes in there, they don't got time, right? It's in and out. They're throwing things on the floor. They're leaving things over there. They leave a mess, and they just take what they want. 
But when he saw that folded handkerchief nicely, neat, neatly wrapped and, and folded there, nice on the, on, the, on the place where Jesus had laid, he said, wait a minute, there's something about that folded napkin. It looked too orderly. It looked too calm. It suggested that what took place here was not an act of thievery in the way that we think. Because indeed, something was robbed, but it wasn't the body of Jesus. It was the grave itself that was robbed. But this, my God, but this is what I come to tell somebody today. When you think the enemy has come to rob you, and yes, he does sometimes, because the enemy comes as a thief. He comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. But Jesus said, I have come that you might have life, and you have it more abundantly. And when you know that, do you want to know the difference between a work of the enemy and the work of God? Do you want to know the difference between the work of the devil and the work of Jesus? Is that when the devil gets through with you, he always leaves a mess. He leaves your marriage a mess. He leaves your children a mess. He leaves your home a mess. He leaves your mind a mess. He leaves your finances a mess. But you know that you have been with God when he sees, oh my, because when God steps into your world, he brings order, he brings power, he brings a process, and he always cleans up after himself. Somebody give God a hand praise today. My God comes, and he comes to clean up our lives. He comes to clean up and put your marriage back in order again. And put your family back in order again. Somebody ought to, come on, I'm done now. You can stand up on your feet if you, he puts your life back together again. He puts your mind back together again. He puts your marriage back together again. He puts your children back together again I don't know if there's somebody here today that feels like the devil has tried to rob you of your joy and your life but I've come to tell you that God Jesus rose from the dead and he came to put everything back in order in your life would you lift up your hands would you magnify the Lord come on up musician would you praise him today would you magnify Jesus the creator is in the house. The healer is in the house. Oh, God Almighty is here to put it all back together again. God, I need you to fold some things. I need you to wrap some. I don't know if there's somebody here today. Say, God, I need you to wrap this thing up. Oh, Lord, I need you to wrap it up. God, yes, I do. Come on and celebrate. Come on and worship him here today. Come on and thank God. He rose. Yes, he did. And he's alive forevermore. Come on, shout hallelujah. Shout hallelujah. Shout amen. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Still shout thank you, Jesus. When God moves, he always cleans up his work. When God moves, he always cleans up his work. 
there is somebody today. Oh, I feel it in my spirit. Yes, be to God. I said, there is somebody today right now. You need to know that God is working all right now. God is working right now in your life. God is working right now in your heart. God is working right now in your family. God is working. God is moving even now. And he's saying, if you will simply see for yourself, God. You know the beauty of today's message? You know the beauty of today's message is that you don't have to take my word for it. Jesus. You don't have to take my word for it. In fact, you are free to doubt me if you want. You're free to doubt me if you want. You don't have to take my word for it. You don't have to just go based off of what I'm telling you. Because I've had my own experience. I've come to the empty tomb myself. And I've seen with my own eyes the works of God. And we're standing in a room. There are people here today with the testimonies of what God has done in their lives. But you don't have to take my word for it. You don't have to just take it on face value. Because the resurrection is the one event in all of Christian and biblical history where Jesus invites the skeptic, the doubter. Jesus invites those who've got questions, those who are just not quite sure if they're ready for the to say, why don't you come over here and see for yourself? Why don't you come and touch? Oh, my God. Thomas said, I'm not till I touch the nail prints in his hand, not till I touch the wound in his side will I believe. And what I love about our Lord and Savior Jesus, he doesn't tell Thomas, no, get away from me. No, he says, come on, go ahead and touch and see. see my. And sometimes you just got to touch, Ooh, you got to touch the resurrection of Jesus. You got to touch it. Uh, I know that the physical body of Jesus is not here today, but the spiritual body of Jesus is here today. Oh my God, I know Oh, hallelujah. That the physical Jesus is not here right now, but the presence of God is here right now. And if there is somebody today that wants to touch him, if there's somebody today that says, I want to see for myself, I invite you right there to lift up your hands. I invite you to call on Jesus. I invite you today to open up your heart to God and say, God, here I am. Lord, I want to see for myself that the Lord is good.